This morning we come to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, and let me pray before we open God's Word together this morning. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the many texts that You have given to us in these 66 books, some no doubt easier than others. We pray this morning that You would help drowsy heads and tired eyelids to stay alert, that You would move in our spirits that we might stay attuned to Your Spirit, and that we might hear You speak to us this morning. Press home Your truth upon our souls, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, this is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. In Acts 17, you have Christians rounded up by persecutors there in Thessalonica, the city of Thessalonica, and as they are rounding up Christians, they bring a charge against them. They say this, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What they didn't understand was that these men, these Christians, were not turning the world upside down, they were turning it right side up. Our world is upside down. You and I live in a very confused world. And so when we come to a passage like this, it rubs against us because we live in a very confused, upside down world. There's more here than I can dive into this morning, especially on the Lord's Table Sunday, but I want to look at this text in three ways this morning to kind of help us navigate our way through this. The first is I want us to look at the overall context because it's instructive and helpful. Second, let us observe God-given gender. And then third, let us see that we are to uphold God-given gender in worship. That's how we're going to walk through it this morning. The context, 
Let us observe God-given gender. And then third, let us see that we are to uphold God-given gender in worship. First, the overall context. I want you to take your Bible. I want you to look with me because you need to see the context here of, of this passage. These verses 8 through 15. If you look at the flow of thought, so right after our passage begins chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Paul is giving instruction for what men are actually eligible to be elders in the church. What men are eligible for such an office? He then goes after that in verses 8 through 13, he gives instruction for what men qualify as deacons. And then we get to chapter 4. In verse, or chapter, four, or chapter 3, verse 14, where he says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Do you see what Paul is doing? He is providing for Timothy and the church there in Ephesus and for us, he is instructing for the proper way that the church is to be ordered. That as the church, this pillar and buttress of truth, as it stands upon truth, as it upholds truth, as it is the beacon of truth in this world, this is how the church is to be ordered. I want you to understand that from the context before we go further. Because there will be some that will say, well, you conservative evangelical Christians, you make too much of gender and you make too much of gender roles in the church. And that can be a fair critique. It can be a fair critique of some in our day. Any good thing can become the thing for someone. Some are one-note Nellies. You know more about their love for gender roles than you know of their love for Christ or their love for the Gospel. And there are some, frankly, in our day who are teaching wrongly and unhelpfully regarding gender and gender roles in the name of Christ. So let's clearly recognize that. But don't miss the point here. Having given these warnings, gender and gender roles are not small, benign issues to the Apostle Paul. Again, notice the context. Paul's instructing Timothy on how there is to be order in the church until he comes. This church which he calls a pillar and a buttress of truth. This matters, Timothy. PCA study report on women in ministry rightfully said regarding this passage as it was exegeting this passage said this, hence the church faces threats of heresy. Remember going back in 1 Timothy, he's dealing with heresy. There are false teachers that are sowing disruption and sowing false teaching in the church. And so the PCA study report says this, hence the church faces threats of heresy by standing firm in the Gospel, maintaining good conduct, retaining proper gender roles, and following qualified leaders, especially in worship. That's the context. 
You're a pillar and buttress of truth. You have to hold to these things. Gender matters as we stand for truth. Why? Because gender is God-ordered. It's God-ordered. Second, let us observe God-given gender. Paul is clear here. He addresses both men and women. Two genders. It is binary. Male and female. Men and women. It doesn't matter how, lo- how loud our culture yells something different and to the contrary. There are men and there are women. That's it. And Paul addresses each personally. Why? Because both male and female are persons. They have equal dignity. They have equal worth. And they are deserving of equal honor. In this respect, there's no difference between men and women. But Paul also addresses each personally because there are differences. Not differences, as we will say, ontologically. That is, by our being. But there is difference functionally. And we see this in the different charges that he gives each differently. And he bases his argument in creation. He says in verse 13, For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Gender is God-given in creation. It's not a result of the fall, as many egalitarians argue. It is God-given in creation. I was driving my car on Wednesday morning of this week, and I was driving into the church and listening to the radio, and uh, the announcer on the radio before the commercial break was saying, well, it's that time of year again. This happens twice a year. And he said, we've got to change our clocks. And he said, we need to turn our clocks backwards. And I started yelling at the radio, no, no. And then he went on and started talking. Then he said it again. He said, you're going to get an extra hour of daylight at the end of the day. We need to turn our clocks backwards this Saturday night. And I'm yelling, no, no. And then he did it a whole third time. And I about lost my everlasting mind at that point. I was rightly outraged. Why? Two reasons. Because one, he was just wrong. And two... Because he was misleading others by giving them a false hope. Like they were going to get an extra hour of sleep. (laughs) When we think about gender issues in our culture today, there is a place for proper outrage. Because what your culture is telling you is just plain wrong. And second, it is giving people A false hope. It is misleading. It is doing damage. Gender is given by God. Again, ontologically, there is nothing greater or lesser between male and female. In fact, the Bible goes out of its way to say that both are created in the image of God. Both have equal dignity and worth before the face of God. The difference is not ontological. It is functional, though. And that is Paul's point as he takes us all the way back to Genesis in verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. 
Eve was formed from the side of Adam. Why? Well, you'll notice in Genesis 1 and 2 that all of these animals are led before Adam and he names every single one of these, these animals so that he sees every one of them. And then when Eve is formed from his side and he sees her, he erupts and he yells, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Whereas the Hebrew says, hubba bubba, he is, this one is like me. But this one is also different from me. She was created to be different functionally. She was created, God says, to be a helper of man. She was created out of Adam. She was created for Adam. There is order in creation of the sexes. But our world is upside down in its thinking. We're witnessing in our day a redefinition of sex, a redefinition of gender, and often it is led to the personal individual to define. They get to decide. The philosopher Charles Taylor has called this the rise of the psychological self. There's a friend of mine has called it, he has called it the tyranny of the psychological self. It's a radical individualism that says, I get to define myself no matter my chromosomes, no matter my reproductive organs, no matter my gametes, though my sex is observable at birth, and though someone can detect my sex by my DNA decades and, and decades after I have died, I get to determine what I am. Gender is fluid. Or even non-existent or non-binary. I read an article this week of a doctor that was making the argument and advocating for so-called gender-affirming care. She said this in the article, she said, at its core, gender-affirming care is simply believing children. She said, when a child tells you they are who, who they are, you believe them, which is really no different from any of the rest of our therapy. When children tell us they're anxious, we believe them. When children tell us they have problems focusing, we believe them. If a child tells me, hey, some doctor got it wrong when I was born and this isn't who I am, I believe them. But here's the problem. It's not simply a doctor that told that child who they are. God told that child who they are by the way that they created that child. Neither our sex nor our gender is fluid. There are two binary sexes and we are born either male or female. That doesn't change. Our psychological self is tied to our biological self. Gender is God-given. It's not a social construct. I say that having great compassion. Great compassion for those who are confused in our day. 
We are in a world that is upside down on this issue. It is so confusing to live in this world, especially for our teenagers and our children below that. So confusing. It is wickedly confusing. But the answer is not simply believing children. When our children tell us that they are a dog, we don't pat them on the head and give them puppy chow for breakfast. We know truth. We have perspective. We believe God. You and I are either male or female. We are a man or a woman, and that does not change. It is God-given. And so third, we're to uphold these distinctions of gender and worship, and that's what I want to look at, and that's what Paul was wrestling through in this text. And that's where we're going to camp out. He addresses both men and women. He begins with men. He says they should pray. God wants praying sons. Everyone is under authority and they are to honor their head by praying. He says that men are to pray in every place, meaning in every place of worship. This is what you are to be. You are to be praying men. And they are to pray, he says, with lifted holy hands. What he says in verse 8. That is, this is the posture. Our posture is to be one of prayer. He states it in the positive, with holy hands. And then he states it in the negative, without anger or quarreling. The emphasis here is not so much a physical posture as it is a spiritual posture. It is Psalm 24 that is in the background here. The psalmist says, those who would ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in His holy place must have clean hands and a pure heart, the psalmist's hand says. That is, you men and worship. You're to be able to lift out holy hands and you're only able to lift out holy hands because you have a holy heart. You're to be pure in worship. Paul is challenging men where they need it. Because men are so prone to anger and quarreling. He says to men, do not think you have a right to approach God in worship when you are harboring resentment and when you are harboring anger and when you are harboring bitterness, when you are engaged in conflict with others in the family of God. Don't think you can come before His throne. And this is what Jesus said. Wouldn't you know that you have conflict with your brother? Don't come and offer your altar, your gift at the altar. You go and be reconciled to your brother first. Remember, these false teachers were generating all kinds of conflict and controversy. Men, if you are stirring up conflict in the body, if you are quarreling, if you are angry in your words, or angry in your heart, or harboring anger, don't think you are offering acceptable worship this morning. That's Paul's point. See, some of you would be incredibly outraged if a woman was in the pulpit preaching this morning. 
And rightfully so. And Paul is saying you should be equally outraged if you are angry and quarreling. When Christians are barking at one another, they aren't crying out before God together. You cannot pray to God unless you are right with your brothers and sisters before God. And what Peter says, oh, does those, those words make me quake sometimes, where he says to husbands, he says that we are to treat our wives as a weaker vessel. He says you're to be gentle with them. And he says if you're not, your prayers are hindered. What is true of husbands is true of brothers. He then addresses women. Women should, he says, adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now why go here, Paul? You're addressing women. Why go here? Well, Paul is addressing the sins that tend to dominate each sex. He isn't saying that women never quarrel or harbor anger. No, if we go to the book of Philippians, you see that Syntyche and Eudea are in great conflict and they're disturbing the church and they're dividing the church over their conflict. He's not saying that men can't dress immodestly or ostentatiously. Rather, it is that men are prone to argument and women are prone to apparel. And so he gives the proper warnings. And both, both of these, anger and apparel, they draw attention to self rather than God. And so he addresses women where there is a special need, even as he addressed men where there was a specially need. Now I want you to see how he does this. First, notice Paul says, likewise to the women. Again, the context matters here. The context is corporate worship again. Likewise. Second, Notice he says a woman should adorn herself. He's not opposed here to women embracing her, a woman embracing her beauty or even enhancing it. That isn't the issue that Paul is addressing here. Those that have said that women need to avoid all adornments and need to not beautify themselves, that they should just walk around frumpy. They got no argument from this passage. That's not what Paul is doing here. He's not concerned about them adorning themselves, but rather how they adorn themselves. The issue is not with braided hair and that in jewelry, that they are somehow wrong in and of themselves, but that too much or too alluring adornment is wrong. As John Stott said, what Paul is emphasizing is that Christian women should adorn themselves with clothing, hairstyles, and jewelry, which in their culture are inexpensive, not extravagant. Modest, not vain, and chaste, not suggestive. That is, corporate worship is not a grand, is not a red carpet event. You're not to be drawing attention to yourselves, not because you are angry and bitter with others, men, and not because you are adorning yourself so to draw attention to yourself, ladies, is what Paul was saying. We're to be directing our gaze to God, 
We are to meet with God. There is to be order. Now part of that order is what Paul says in verse 12. Verse says divided churches, as divided denominations, as divided homes. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. He's clear. A woman is to learn, not teach. A woman is to learn, not teach. But how do you make sense of that? Because Paul will allow women to teach. He'll celebrate a woman teaching, like Priscilla teaching alongside of Aquila. He'll instruct women to teach in 1 Corinthians as he gives instructions to women that are prophesying. He will encourage a general admonition that all should teach in Colossians 3 where he says that we are to have psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs for one another. He will tell women in Titus 2 that older women are to disciple, teach younger women. First, I want you to see this. Paul says, let a woman learn. That would have blown up every social convention in Paul's day. Women weren't to learn. Women weren't to be educated. It blows up every social convention of his day. But then he goes on to blow up every social convention of our day, doesn't he? Where he says a woman should be silent and not teach. So what does he mean? The issue for Paul is not that a woman is not allowed to talk. It's not that she's not to have an opinion or isn't to be a thinking person in the church. In fact, women learning, being educated, Paul is asserting as part of the church's life. Again, there is not an ontological difference between men and women. Rather, it is functional. And what Paul does here in our text is he links together teaching and authority. He puts them together. And what he has in view is church order. Just as there is order in the family, so there is to be order in the church. So again, what do we make of the fact that he has women teach, but he prohibits it here? Well, there are only two possibilities for you. He commends women teaching. He even tells them about teaching. But then here he says women can't teach. Remain silent. Only two possibilities for you. It's either the prohibition here is a passing prohibition or it's a partial prohibition. It's one or the other. Many egalitarians want to say that it's a passing prohibition. They'll point to the word here that Paul uses permit, and it's in the present tense here. And so they will say, therefore, when a woman becomes more educated, when she has learned more in the future, then she should be allowed to teach, she should be allowed to exercise authority. But again, notice the grounds that Paul gives for this instruction. The deficit here is not education, he roots it in creation. It isn't a passing prohibition. Complementarians have rightfully said that Paul's prohibition here is permanent. 
It's permanent, but it's partial. That is, women may teach in certain realms. They may teach in certain spheres in the church. Where? Well, if we think about each of the settings where we see Paul commending or where he is instructing women to teach, they are always one of these three things, if not all three of these things. They are informal, they are occasional, and they are private settings. They're informal, they are occasional, and they're in private settings, and that is allowable. Now, each local church and its elders have to wrestle through that. What actually does it look like? Where are the parameters drawn here? What actually is informal? What's occasional? What is a private setting? And so different churches that are ordered will be ordered a little differently. But Paul's prohibition here is not the informal. It's not the occasional. It's not the private. He makes that clear by the word that he uses here for teach. It's a distinct word that he uses over and over in the pastoral letters. And it's a word that he uses for preaching. It refers to the preaching of Scripture, officially teaching the doctrine of the church. And he makes it crystal clear, absolutely crystal clear, that women are prohibited from engaging in the formal, regular, gathered, authoritative teaching of the church. That is preaching. That teaching, that responsibility, that formal responsibility, as Paul will go on to show in the very next verses, is the responsibility of the elders, which is limited to men as he goes on. It is men in the church that bear this responsibility. Men. And it is a high responsibility. That is the God-given order. Now, egalitarians will often argue that Paul is addressing a specific concern in Ephesus where women were seeking to abuse authority. They will argue it was a crossover from the cultic worship there in Ephesus of the goddess Artemis and that it was no doubt women that were carrying this kind of radical feminism into the church and that they were probably dressing immodestly as was often done at the temple and the worship of Artemis, but there's no evidence of that in the text. Again, Paul grounds his exhortation not in the cultural moment. He grounds it in creation. He says, Eve sinned. That's the argument. She was deceived in the garden. Why does he bring up that argument? Why does it matter that she sinned? What is it that he's bringing to bear there? It was that she wasn't seeking to be a helper to her husband in that moment. She was deceived and she took the place of authority and she upset the created order. That's why part of the cursing in Genesis 3 when God is meeting out the curses to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent, He says to Eve that part of the curse of now women in this world is that they will desire to rule over their husbands. You upset the created order. And now you're going to live with the curse of continually trying to upset the created order. It is not that men are more responsible than women. It is not that they are smarter than women. It is not that they are godlier than women. 
It is rather simply due to the order that God established in creation that men are tasked and bear the responsibility of authority in the church. Now Paul knows the concern in saying such a thing. And so he closes with verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith and love and holiness and self-control. There are differences of opinion of what Paul is referring to in verse 15. This entire text has spilled more ink than maybe any text in Scripture. Verse 15 is one of those. I think there's a good case to be made that one of the things that Paul is doing here is he's saying women... Though this is the case in the church, you don't have to become a man to be saved. There is actually godliness and there is holiness in fulfilling your responsibility in the world as you were created to be. I think that's possible. I think what's more likely is because of the definite article here. There's a definite article in the Greek. It's the childbearing. They will be saved by the childbearing. It seems to me that what Paul is doing is he is closing this passage with re-emphasizing the importance of women. And he's doing that in the most demonstrable way he possibly can as he talks about salvation came into the world through a woman. As John Stott said, he said, even if certain rules are not open to women, and even if they are tempted to resent their position, they and we must never forget what we owe to a woman. If Mary had not given birth to the Christ child, there would have been no salvation for anybody. No greater honor has ever been given to woman than in the calling of Mary to be the mother of the Savior of the world. And I would go a step further and say no greater honor has ever been given to a single individual in the entire course of human history than to the woman Mary. And being the vessel through which the Son of God came into the world. And he came into the world, at least in part, if not wholly, to make things right, to set the right order in place. If you allow me just a few minutes before we go to the table, just because of some of the culture Malou we're in, and I want to point something out to you. The talk about gender and gender-related roles is not tangential to the Gospel. It's important. It's not unrelated to Christ being born to the world. There is a reason that churches that historically on the whole 
have run from male headship in the home and in the church have eventually as denominations given up the gospel. There's a reason for that. Again, notice the context. There's a movement that has arisen just in the last few years that is I think, putting many of our young people college students, high schoolers, especially in grave jeopardy. It has been been called the so-called deconstruct evangelicalism movement or deconstruction movement. And you'll notice that part of this deconstruction aims at destroying complementarianism. That's not a mistake. We're told that the complementarian view is simply a mask to hide the agenda of sex and power grabbing by men. And I'll be the first to confess that many men have made a wreck of this. And there have been entire eras of the church that have made a wreck of this. And there are people in our day and age that are making a wreck of this. There are those that are not speaking to it rightly and those that are speaking of it wrongly. And so we are to be self-reflective. We are to confess where we need to confess sin. We are to repent where we have need for repentance. We are to, to avoid hypocrisy where it is pointed out. But I want you to understand that there is no end to the deconstruction effort. If everything is conditionally, culturally conditioned, as the deconstructionists are arguing, and everything is shaped by the cultural errors of the moment, i.e. complementarianism in their view, then everything is suspect. Everything. Nothing eventually stands. Every single teaching of the Scriptures, every single claim of Christianity becomes suspect and ultimately needs to be jettisoned because every single thing can be argued that it was culturally conditioned. The Apostles' Creed, a culturally conditioned. The Nicene Creed with the Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Roman Empire, culturally conditioned. A project in our day to dismantle masculinity and femininity and to dismantle gender roles and marriage in the church ultimately ends in dismantling evangelicalism and ultimately ends in dismantling Christianity. That's where it ends. C.S. Lewis said it this way in The Abolition of Man. So the kind of explanation which explains things away may give us something, though at a heavy cost. But you cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you've explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window should be transparent because the street or the garden beyond is opaque. However, if you saw through the garden too, it's no use 
trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a holy, transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. Do you understand the deconstruction project? It says we're seen through everything. We're seeing that everything is culturally adapted, culturally accommodated, and we see through this, and that allows us to see through this, and there's no end to it. So everything becomes nothing. And there's no truth to grab onto because everything is culturally conditioned. I understand much Christian authority wielded by men hasn't looked exactly Christian. I understand that. And I know some of you, I've heard some of your stories, some of you have suffered greatly and been subjugated to an ungodly Christian authoritarianism. And I am absolutely sorry for you. That pains me for the cause of Christ. That pains me for you. But that is not the fault of the teaching of Scripture. It's the fault of sinners not rightly living the teaching of Scripture. We don't abandon the principle because of failure to implement it correctly. I didn't give up on all forms of music when I heard Yoko Ono first sing or Justin Bieber sing. (laughs) Music's still good. The two God-given defined genders are still good. What you were created by God to be is still good. What your son or daughter was created by God to be is still good. How God has ordered the family and the church is still good. And one day, we'll see this goodness in all that's glory. As we the bride are united to our bridegroom under His authority for all eternity. And this world that is so upside down and so confused about these things will be completely turned right side up. Dear Christian, you know that. Which means that you have to hold on to that truth in the midst of this world that is upside down. Which means you have to stand upon that truth in this world that is upside down. It's good for you. It's good for the church. It's good for your family. It's good for the world around you. Let's pray. Father, we do exalt You. And give you praise this morning that you are a God of order and not disorder. 
We pray that we would, as the church of God, be a buttress and pillar of truth who stand upon Your eternal truths. That we would do so in faithfulness to You, that we would do so out of kindness for one another. That we would do so for the world around us. Looking forward to that day when all things shall be set right. And all that is disordered becomes ordered everlasting. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.